I don't know if you know this or not, uh, New, Year's, New Year's Day, a lot of people do New Year's resolutions. I've never understood them. Um, I'm terrible at them, so I don't, you know, I'm like most people. If I'm terrible at something, I just refuse to do it. So I don't do New Year's resolutions. But you have to, under, but, but I think it's worth thinking, well, why do people do, do New Year's resolutions? You know, I've just, you know, maybe you might resolve to work out and get in shape in the new year. Why would you, why would somebody make a resolution like that? Um, you know, maybe you're thinking of your health. You know, if I don't get in shape, I, I could face some health problems down the line. Or, or maybe you want to feel better. Uh, maybe you've uh, found that you don't feel very good, and you think maybe getting in shape would, would help you feel better. Maybe you don't like your appearance, and you say, well, you know, if I get in shape, I'll, I'll feel like I look uh, better. Uh, maybe you're going to resolve to get a project done in your home this year. And you say, you know, I've got to get this project done because it's uh, make the house look nicer or it'll make it things more convenient. Uh, it'll make my spouse happier. Might be a reason to resolve to do such a thing. Uh, maybe you're going to resolve to take some of your bad habits and do them less. I, I set the real bar, the bar real. I said, what, what do you mean? You, why not just resolve not to do them? No, no, no. Let's make it achievable. I'm just going to do them less, okay? make these goals achievable. Uh, why, would we, you know, why would I make a resolution to, to reduce bad habits in my life? Well, I want to make better choices, either for health reasons or, or maybe there are moral and ethical reasons or uh, uh, spiritual reasons. I just want to make better choices. And, and so we do these resolutions. That's why we do these resolutions. We have a story today, a historical account in the life of Samuel, in the life of Saul. And Saul uh, makes some terrible choices. And this passage is all about what we read, uh, or what I read, and you followed along, hopefully, is that it, it says, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. And I don't want it to sound dull and churchy, but the passage is kind of dull and churchy. It's all about obedience. It's all about obeying. It's saying God is calling his people to obedience, to do what he tells them to do in, in, a, in, in a way of speaking. And so I thought, well, we all know what obedience is, doing what God says to do, right? But I had a thought about this, and I wanted to ask you this question. You don't have to answer out loud. We wouldn't have time to go around the room. But my question is, why obedience? Yeah, I don't, you know, what's the big deal? And, and what's interesting is we go through this uh, time in Saul's life and in Israel's life, we discover precisely why obedience. But I want you to think about this passage as we go through it, not so much as what, it, uh, what you might think, which is, well, I just have to obey. I need to bear down and obey more. I need to be a better person, be a better godly person. I need to uh, just do the right thing more often. I, I just need to bear down and get her done. But what this passage actually does for us is, is much more important than that. The, the passage is going to tell us why. Why does that matter? Why does obedience matter? Why is it so critically important? And I think once we understand that, It'll shed some light on what's going on in our own hearts. So why obedience? Here's what's happening in this story. Saul is king, and Samuel shows up, and you see this in the first verse or two of Samuel 15. Samuel shows up, and he comes to Saul, and he says, Saul, listen, I'm the one who anointed you king, and I have a word of the Lord for you. I mean, wouldn't that be great if somebody did that to you? he said, say, guess what? God spoke to me, and he's going to tell you what to do. How, how many times in your life would that have been fan Fantastic. I mean, who's prayed this prayer? God, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. I mean, just, I have no idea what to do. If you will just tell me what to do, 
I'll, I'll at least have clarity to know what you want me to do here. Well, amazingly, Saul has this happen. Samuel shows up and he says, Saul, guess what? I'm the one who anointed you king. God showed up last night. We were playing pinochle. And uh, I don't know why pinochle. It just came to mind. And, uh, and, and, and he has a word for you. He wants you to attack the Amalekites and wipe them out. Get an army together. I want you to go to the Amalekites. I want you to kill everything that's Amalekite that breathes. Man, woman, child, puppy dog, kitty cat, sheep, goat. I don't know what else would be Amalekite and breeds, but everything, scorched earth, nothing can live. I mean, clear, clear as a bell, here's the word of the Lord. Now, why in the world would God have such a, a hang-up with the Amalekites? It doesn't seem kind of brutal. Yes, it does. If it doesn't seem brutal, you're not reading it right. It sounds terribly brutal. And here is what happened. Long ago in the history of Israel, Israel was coming out of Egypt. You remember Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea, and they were meandering through the wilderness, and the Amalekites attacked them at their most vulnerable moment. It's recorded back in Exodus chapter 17. And the Israelites had to fight the Amalekites to save their, their own lives. The Amalekites... Uh, only by the hand of the Lord did the Israelites attack the Amal- uh, uh, destroy the Amalekites or defeat the Amalekites. And now time of judgment had come for that terrible act of attack by the Amalekites. Unprovoked, they attacked the, the Jewish people as they were leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land. And now God comes to Saul and says, Saul, listen. The Amalekites have done this horrible thing against my people long ago, and it is time for debts to be paid. Judgment is declared upon them. They must die for their rejection of my people. And go wipe them out. Wipe the Amalekites out. Saul gets an an army together, gathers a, a, a very large army, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. He goes down. He prepares to attack the Amalekites. There are some people, the Kenites, who are living with the Amalekites, and Saul tells those folks, listen, we're buddies. You better take off because I'm killing everything. So the Kenites leave town, and Paul then attacks the Amalekites, and he wipes them out. What happens? Almost. I mean, really, really close. I mean, he does 90% of the job. Wow, that's pretty good, right? He wipes out nearly everybody. He keeps the best animals, the best livestock, and he keeps the king, Agag, alive, which is likely an indication that many of the nobles and important people were kept alive. So Saul attacked the Amalekites, and he wiped out anything that was deemed despised or worthless. So Saul had no problem wiping out men, women, and children who were of nothing in terms of importance, but to keep important and valuable livestock and royalty, he decided those were too important to kill. God then sends a message to Samuel, the prophet. Samuel's not there, but God calls him up and says, Listen, Samuel, I regret, I am grieved that Saul is king. I cannot understand why I made him king, if we can say it that way. He has not done what I have said. So Samuel travels down to meet with Saul, and he can't find him. The battlefield is empty, and they say, where is, where is Saul? And everybody tells Samuel, no, Saul has made his way to Carmel, and he set up a monument for himself, probably a statue of him, which would have been very, very tall. He was tall to begin with. Statues are always bigger than real life, right? Set up a monument unto himself for his glorious victory over the Amalekites, and was on his way to Gilgal, and that's where Saul met Saul 
Samuel, or Samuel found Saul. And Saul comes up to Samuel and says, what have you done? What is this I hear in my ears, Samuel says in verse 14. Is this a lowing of cattle that should be dead? Saul, hamburger does not moo. This is not complicated. It should be dead. It is not because it is making noise. And Saul answered, Listen, the the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle because we wanted to have a really cool church service. We wanted to worship the God, and we had all this great food. So we figured that would be off the chain. That would be awesome. Let's have a great worship time with all these great sacrifices. And Samuel says to Saul, stop it. Stop it. The Lord has told me that even though you were small in your own eyes and you meant nothing even to yourself, I have elevated you to kingship. Why could you not merely obey the Lord? God says, listen, I came to you. You weren't seeking to be king. You were nothing, even by your own admission. You were nothing. I made you king, and now all I asked you to do was simply obey, to just simply do what I had called you to do, to destroy the Amalekites. But you haven't. You brought that. You pounced on the plunder. You retained the best of the Amalekites. You even brought back the royalty as testament to your greatness. Saul admitted his sin. I've sinned. I'm sorry. I violated. And Saul and Samuel says to Saul, "Too late. You're not. You have been rejected as king. You've been rejected as king." And Saul says, "No, but seriously, I really have sinned." And, and, so, and Samuel says, it's too late. You have been rejected as king. And then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king. They brought Agag to Samuel. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so I will make your mother childless. And he hacked Agag to pieces. It doesn't say that in the NIV, but that's the better translation. He chopped him up. He made mincemeat of him. The rage of the Lord, the wrath of God against the rebellious and evil Amalekites was finally meted out upon Agag through Samuel when it should have come through Saul. Samuel left, Saul left, and Samuel and Saul never saw each other again for the rest of their lives. Why obedience? Why is this such a big deal? I mean, what did Saul do different than any other king in all of history has done? Anything? No, you always keep the plunder. Why do you keep the plunder? What's a good reason to keep plunder? It's a great way to raise an army. You guys fight for me, you get to keep what you take. But that wasn't what the God commanded. So what is the big deal here? Saul here has done nothing unusual except that God had asked him to do something unusual. So let me explain. There's three things here about why obedience is important as we see it in the life of King Saul and Samuel. Number one, obedience is is rooted in God's redemptive story. Obedience is rooted in God's story to save lost people. How did the chapter 15 start out of 1 Samuel? God tells Saul the story through Samuel. The Amalekites attacked Israel when? When they were coming out of Egypt. Why was God bringing Israel out of Egypt? Because they were his chosen people. Do you remember how he got Israel out of Egypt? Something about an angel of death, doorways with blood 
painted on them that the angel might overlook them, that they might redeem that house from the angel of the Lord. They were redeemed out of Egypt by the hand of God, baptized through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land. God's redemptive people on redemptive mission to bring salvation to all of the world. And the Amalekites nearly messed it up. I mean, we think this is, are the Amalekites just evil because they were attacking Israel? Well, yes, but it's bigger than that. God is going to bring Jesus the Messiah through this people. I think God might take exception if you try to destroy them, wouldn't you think? And God's wrath against the Amalekites was bigger than just simple, simply nationalistic war. It was God's redemptive purposes at work through all of history, and the Amalekites were trying to disrupt that, I would suggest, by the hand of Satan. This is bigger than God wanting to give Saul an opportunity to show the medal of his kingship. This is God wanting to show that his redemptive purpose in all of history is the most important thing he has going. And the Amalekites, when they attacked Israel, put themselves outside of God's redemption. The way to be saved as an Amalekite would be stop being an Amalekite and become Jewish at that point. And God says, if you're an Amalekite, you're under the curse. And they all remained it and did so. Obedience is rooted to God's redemptive story because, listen, here's something important I want you to understand. God is doing something bigger than making well-behaved people. Oh, Lord, have mercy. If the only thing he is doing on planet Earth is trying to make us well-behaved, I think he's doing something a little bit bigger than making people polite and nice and respectful. God is doing something enormously bigger than making well-behaved people. God is redeeming dead people. And to do that, he is going to bring Messiah through his people, Israel. And the Amalekites thought they could destroy that people. And God says, no way, not without consequences. And when the time had come, he commanded his king to wipe out the Amalekites. Not because they merely made war, but because they were seeking to thwart the plan of God to redeem lost people. Think about it this way if you're a parent. And this would make sense to you if you've been a parent for longer than three minutes. Question is, parents, would we like to have obedient children? Yes. Why do we want to have obedient children? It's more convenient when they do what they say. Because when they don't obey, they have to get up and figure out what to do with them. Right? Well, but really, what, why do we really want obedient children? Not just merely so we have well-behaved children. Why do we, would we like our children to understand right and wrong and the right way to operate in the world? Because it turns out there might be a day when they become adults. Please, Lord. Right? I mean, there's a day when they're going to become adults, and what we're trying to teach them is not merely to be good kids. We're trying to show them what life looks like when they become adults. So obedience here, is it, even in God's economy, is not merely trying to make us well-behaved. He wants us to understand how we fit into his redemptive story. He has been telling something from the fall of mankind until this very moment that he is redeeming lost people. And he wants us to understand how we fit into that redemptive story. Saul had no clue how he fit into it. Moses brings Israel out of Egypt, by the hand of God, the Amalekites try to destroy Israel, and God uh, uh, thwarts that plan. And now he calls Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and he doesn't. So what happens because of that? Later on, in a book called Esther, Esther chapter 3, there's a guy named Haman. 
When you hear the name Haman, the Darth Vader uh, song should play in the back of your mind. He's one of the bad guys. Haman was described as what? You remember Esther chapter 3? An Agagite. Descended in the line of Agag. Why does the book of Esther even exist in our Bible? Because Saul was an idiot. I shouldn't say that. That's disrespectful. Because Saul didn't understand his purpose in, his, in redemptive history. And so he left some Amalekites around and some Agagites around, and it was one of these guys that was later going to try and destroy Israel again. Josephus, the ancient historian, took for granted, didn't even seek to prove the fact that Haman was an Agagite. Agagite. You go home and try and say that. Okay. Saul must understand his purpose as the king of Israel is to shepherd his people towards the redemptive purposes of God, not merely to be a good king. A good king lets his soldiers take the bounty to pounce on the plunder. A good king keeps the royal dignitary so that he can have them serve him or pay tribute to him. And that's not what God had called him to do. Another way of thinking about this. God had sent Saul and his men on a mission, not a military mission, but a mission of divine judgment. He had said to Saul, I am giving you authority to execute my judgment on people who have stepped outside of my redemptive purposes by their own choices. I'm going to say it this way. It's a little bit offensive, and I hope you mind. Don't mind. So they have consigned themselves to hell by rejecting me and my redemptive purposes, and I'm asking you to send them there. Is that a fairly solemn thing to take fairly seriously, you think? Uh, I think big time. This is not about how many cows I can get. This is about understanding in all seriousness what God is doing here. He is taking the judgment that people had put on themselves through rejection of God himself and calling his people, his king, to deliver those people on the judgment they ought to receive. Now, it's not our position to say whether that's right or wrong. It's to submit to God's purposes. But Saul should have understood the solemnness of his duty, the, the seriousness of what he was up to. God is not spiteful. God is not short-tempered, but he is just. And when we reject him in his redemptive purposes, that consigns us into his judgment. And that's what the Amalekites had done. And he had given them hundreds of years to repent and redeem themselves through the people of God. And they had refused to do so. And so Saul was called in solemnness of duty to go and execute the judgment of God. And he didn't take it seriously. He thought it was a chance to notch his belt with another military victory, a chance to enrich himself with the bounty of the Amalekites, a chance to improve his uh, position in front of his men. Because Saul didn't understand obedience because he thought obedience was merely doing what you're told. Obedience is understanding. God is doing more than trying to make well-behaved people. He's trying to see us understand how we fit in his redemptive story and live in accordance with what he is doing. God calls us as Christians to serve. 
God calls us as Christians to pray. God calls us as Christians to know his word. God calls us as Christians to be generous. God calls us as Christians to love people we don't like very much. God calls us as husbands to love our wives. He calls us as wives to respect our husbands. He calls us as fathers to not exasperate our children. He calls us as children to obey our parents. And he calls us to do all of those things, not merely because that's what good Bible people do, but he calls us to do all of those things because he is redeeming people for all of eternity. And this is what redeemed life looks like. If I am redeemed and have an eternal life that's founded on the promises of God, I can give my entire life away and I haven't lost anything. If I am redeemed by a loving God who has sent his son to die for me, I can love others without ever having them love me in return. Why? Because I've already received more love than I could ever give. If I am an heir of the kingdom of God with Christ, I can be generous because if I gave everything away, what have I lost? Nothing. And God has called us into obedience not to be good people. He has called us into obedience because he is redeeming lost people. And he wants us to understand how we fit in redemptive history. He's doing something bigger than just making us good people. He's using us and the work he's doing through us to call lost people into repentance. Why obedience? Number one, it's rooted in what God is doing to redeem lost people in Christ. Secondly, redemption is for God's benefit, not ours. Now, you're going to hate this entire point. Let me just get that. I've got a point here to make. You're going to hate all of it. I only say that because I don't like it terribly well either. But as it turns out, it's critically important. Obedience is for God's benefit, not ours. When we think of obedience to God as something that is intended to benefit us, we might think of it this way, that God has merely provided a guide for us to have the best way to live. You know, God provides us a guide through his word. This is the best way to live. It provides the greatest benefit relationally. It provides the greatest benefit professionally. It provides the greatest benefit spiritually. And so here's a fantastic guide of how good people gain the most benefit from God. So if you follow these 10 rules, uh, you follow these 15 guidelines, God will bless your socks off. I don't even know what it means to have your socks blessed off. On a cold day, that's not a blessing. Let me let, let you in on something the Bible teaches us about obedience. Obedience is a guide that provides the most benefit to God himself. He came up with a master plan called redemptive history and making himself known throughout uh, the history of Scripture and the truth of God's Word that brings him the most benefit. The whole entire purpose of obedience is to see how much benefit can be brought not to us, but to God himself. All of obedience is intended for God's benefit, not ours. Thinking again about Saul's mission to bring judgment of God upon the Amalekites, he determined to, by the guidance of his men, to pounce on the plunder, as the Bible says. Suddenly he went from a spiritual leader seeking to bring out God's redemptive purposes in history to a mercenary. Listen, it's hard enough for me to stomach 
that Paul, or I should say Saul, had to go into the Amalekites and kill every living thing. That's hard. I can't imagine what that was like. I can't imagine it. And it's hard even for me to get my head around why that's necessary, but it was. It's even more insane to think that Saul did it to get some cows. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine to walk into a home and have to wipe out an entire family? I mean, I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. I'm not going to play it down for you. It's one thing to go in there and say, you know what, God has a purpose behind this, and all of these people have individually rejected God's redemptive purposes. And I'm going to trust God's justice and holiness is worked out through this. That's one thing. It's still going to make me pretty uncomfortable. You? Yeah, I hope so. Okay, good. It makes me a whole lot more uncomfortable to think somebody did that so they could get a couple extra cows. I mean, that's nuts. That is absolutely Looney Tunes. All of a sudden now, Saul has gone from spiritual shepherd fit into the master redemptive purposes of God to an assassin for hire. Killing families for livestock. He has no concept of how bad and evil this has become. He has taken something that was the holy work of God, uh, inspired and empowered by the work of God, God's perfect justice and God's perfect holiness, and he has perverted it into the biggest miscarriage of justice you could imagine. And then he does something really spiritual with that. He gains 10 cows. Let's just do the math here. Let's say Saul gained 10 cows. He did. He gained more than that. And so he gained 10 cows. He's coming out from this war. He's coming out 10 cows to the positive. Hey, that's not bad. Everybody needs hamburger, filet mignon. Saul shows up, or I should say Samuel. The S names confuse me. Samuel shows up, and he goes, oh, so what's going on with the cows? Hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to sacrifice one of them. I'm, so I've got my 10% covered. Now, Samuel, we're a good pastor. He said, let's weigh them. Let's make sure we're doing 10% by weight, not merely by, okay, never mind. See, so all of a sudden now, Saul is claiming that by reducing his overall profit, he's making a sacrifice. I mean, isn't that nuts? He goes to war to do a holy work of God, He's leaving on the prophet side, and he decides he is somehow spiritually sacrificing to God's benefit because he's not profiting as much as he might have been able to. Obedience is not intended for our benefit so that we can somehow make a, a pseudo-sacrifice and call it, well, I didn't make as much as I could, so therefore, God, I'm sacrificing on your behalf. All obedience is sacrifice and work that is done on behalf of and for the benefit of God himself. Saul had successfully done what we all do a lot of times, reduced, reduced obedience to simply mostly obedient. Obedience is always sacrifice. I say this in my home a lot. My children don't like it. The reason it's called obedience is because you don't want to do it. The things you want to do, we call that play. It's obedience is always calling us to do something we would not otherwise do to the benefit of God, and it is a sacrifice. And sacrifice is never enriching. 
It's never enriching. I don't sacrifice by reducing the amount of my enrichment. I sacrifice by, sacrif- by not being enriched. And Saul somehow had twisted in his mind that he could become an assassin for hire on God's behalf and reduce his overall profit and call himself spiritually sacrificing. This guy's out of his mind. It's going to become more clear later on in Samuel. But he had completely missed the point. Obedience is not for our benefit. Obedience is always and wholly for God's benefit. I can say it even more strongly if you don't mind, and I'm going to even if you do. Obedience is not intended to be mutually beneficial. Well, yes, I obey, so therefore God is benefited, but I get a little side benefit of my own. And that's not the intention here. The intention here is for God to be the one who solely benefits from our obedience. Now, you may be wondering, well, what in the world do I get out of this? That's a fair question. If you're not answering that, asking that question, you ought to. Well, what do I get out of this? I thought the whole idea of loving my wife unconditionally was I would stay married a long time. It would save me on attorney's fees. I thought the whole idea of not being exasperated with my children is they would grow up to be good Christian adults. I thought the whole benefit of serving my employer well, even when he's not looking, was that I would receive lots of promotions and get lots of... Uh, what do I get out of this? What's my benefit for obedience? And that's a fair question, because you get something great. Are you ready? You get God. God is the one we have gained because he has redeemed us by his own intention, not ours. By his intention, he makes a way for us to be redeemed through the blood of Christ that we gain him. We, in fact, the Bible says in Ephesians, we become heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, heirs to the kingdom of God, which is God himself. What else could we possibly seek to benefit? The problem with our obedience is not that we seek to have a benefit from our obedience. The problem with our obedience is we set the bar too low for what we want to receive. We want to obey God by loving our spouse unconditionally for merely the reason of having a good marriage. That's too low of a thing. We obey God in loving our spouses unconditionally because we have, through Christ, already gained the kingdom of God. God gets our obedience as a glor- that brings him glory and brings him great benefit. We do so because we have already gained God through the work of Jesus Christ. Why obedience? Number one, our obedience is rooted not in good behavior, but in God's redemptive story through all of history. Secondly, why obedience? We obey for God's benefit and not our own. And Saul missed that. Lastly, I don't know if you'll like this point any better than the last one. Why obedience? Obedience is the result of hearing the right voice. All obedience is the result of hearing the right voice. Let me put it this way. And you can decide in your own mind if you agree or disagree with me. All of our actions, all of our actions, are obedience to somebody. Every action, every decision, every choice we make, every 
uh, move we make. All our actions are obedience to somebody. So the question then becomes not what should I do, the question becomes who should I listen to? Obedience is really not a question of what should I do, the question is who should I listen to? Let me point it out, look at the life of Saul. He had three voices that he heard from in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Three voices. First voice was God's clear word to Saul. I mean, Saul received something many of us have never received, a clear indication from God, here's what I want you to do. God says, Saul, do this. So he heard one voice clearly, the word from God, kill everything that that is Amalekite and the breeze, man, woman, child, animals, everything. If it's breathing, it shouldn't be. So number one, he heard a voice from God through the prophet Samuel. Second voice he heard. Samuel also heard it when he visited. What was the second voice? What is this mooing I hear? What is this lowing of cattle? The bleating of sheep. Bleating is a weird word, but it's better than baying. It's harder to say baying, you know. So what, what's it? I hear sheep, Samuel, or Saul. Saul I'm, I hear sheep. What's this all about? I mean, it's one thing to obey, and okay, I hear God what you're saying, destroy everything. And then you get there, and you've destroyed most everything, you say, holy cow, this livestock is worth a ton, a ton of money. I mean, back then, that's the bank account. That's the stock market. That's the piles of gold. He said, boy, I don't know about this. I'm not sure. Okay, just, let's kill all the ones that are diseased, and we know they're not going to make it anyway. Let's, let's just get rid of the, the nasty ones. So he heard the voice of the livestock, of the cattle, and of the sheep, of the material wealth, of the certainty of the future he would have if he had all of this money. All his problems would finally go away. He heard that voice, the voice of material, financial, future that is assured, never have to work again. What's the last voice he heard? The voice of his soldiers. Verse 24, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. My soldiers were there, and they fought hard, and they fought valiantly, and they're, they're, they're due plunder. They should be paid. I don't have enough money to pay them. So I let them keep some of the plunder. So the other voice he heard was his soldiers, the people around him, that deep-seated desire to re- receive respect and approval from the people who mattered to him. Here's what God calls him to do, obedience. And it was going to cost him money. It was going to cost him his future. It was going to cost him all kinds of security. It was going to cost him approval of his soldiers who fought valiantly doing the the gruesomest of acts. And he was going to say, they're going to show up, okay, where's our payday? And he says, we got to serve the Lord. Isn't that amazing? How do you think his soldiers would respond to that? Poorly. Because he was a terrible shepherd, and he hadn't showed them what that looks like. So we heard three calls. The call of God for obedience, the call of material wealth, and the call of approval. And of those three voices, he rejected one of them. Verse 23, last part. You have rejected the word, the voice of the Lord. You heard from God, he told you, and you said, no thanks, I don't like it. 
This is what Samuel compares that to. He says, your rebellion, rebellion and rejection of the voice of the Lord in favor of the voice of uh, approval of your men and the, uh, the rece- receiving material wealth through plunder. He says, your rebellion is like the sin of divination. How can we say that so we can connect to that a little bit? That Saul, your rebellion is like worshiping Satan. You're being satanic, Saul. Your arrogance is like idolatry. It's like you set up an idol and worshiped it on the battlefield. Your rejection of the word of the Lord is like sorcery, like idolatry, which is uh, spiritual ways using spiritism to create a God who serves us. That's what divination and idolatry does. Through spiritism and the occult and, and dark spiritual forces, create a God who will serve us instead of seeking to serve God himself. Why obedience? It's the result of hearing the right voice. To love God is to hear his voice and to listen. To love God is to hear his voice and to listen to what he has to say, knowing that's to the exclusion of the siren song of of all the other voices. The voice in our head that tells us all our problems will go away if we have enough money. The voice in our head that says our problems will go away if I finally get the approval I have or need at work. The voice in our head that says my problems will go away when, when the junk in my family is figured out, right? And all these voices are telling us here's what will bring fulfillment and satisfaction and importance. And God says I want you to stop listening to all these other voices which are so appealing and listen to my voice. And hear my voice. Not because you must, but maybe because you have an affection for me. God calls us to hear his voice and to listen to his voice because of a love and affection for him, the God who has saved us. Why obedience? Because we want to hear God's voice and we want to love God's voice. When we hear what God is saying to us, our hearts should be lifted. God has spoken. He has given me clarity of thought on what must be in my life to the exclusion of all other things that will cost me significantly, but I've gained God. I've gained his kingdom. Why obedience? Thank the Lord it's not to be good, well-behaved people. So we can cast that out. Amen? If that's the only thing you learn today, it's not just being well-behaved people. It's about being rooted in God's redemptive story. His history, that his narrative he's been telling, that he says, I am going to send a Savior. Now, we thankfully don't live in Saul's time. Saul was anticipating, or should have been anticipating, the Messiah to come. We, to our benefit, live in a time when the Messiah has come. So all our sins have been forgiven. We have, re- we have received, as an inheritance, the entire kingdom of God. That's pretty cool. I don't know what you got for Christmas. But the entire kingdom of God is better than that. And, and we have received, become heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And, and, and as a result, we can obey God knowing it costs us, in reality, nothing. But it means we have to hear his voice. Why obedience? Because it's for God's benefit. God has not, through giving us a prescription of what our life looks like, rooted in his redemptive story, he has not provided us a guide to live our best life. He has provided a guide to benefit him 
most. I should say, that something just came to my mind. That's dangerous, so here we go. Does it bother you when I say that God designed the whole thing for his own benefit? I mean, it doesn't bother you a little bit. I mean, yeah. You know why it bothers us? Because we want to be God. We've been doing this since the beginning. The reason it drives us nuts that God does everything for his own benefit is because it drives us nuts that we're not God. Now, it'd be okay if everything was done for our benefit. Any problems? Anybody have a problem if everybody in your life did everything for your benefit? Amen, let's go, dismiss. we're dismissed, right? This, he is God, and the reason it bothers us that everything is for his benefit is because we want his chair. And this is the way it's been since the fall. But all of our obedience is not necessarily primarily rooted to our benefit, but our obedience is to be rooted in what benefits God the most. And finally, why obedience? Because we have heard his voice and we love it. Let me make three points about Jesus as, by way of closing. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus was not well behaved. Oh, he was terrible. You did not want him at your party. He would irritate the heck out of you. Come on, man, can't you just have a good time? Jesus was not well-behaved, but his, his obedience was perfectly done and perfectly rooted to the story that God was telling to save people through his sacrifice. The night before his death, he was in a garden at a prayer meeting. And he, listen, he did not want to go to the cross. How do I know? What did he pray? Do you remember what he prayed? God, through tears and blood dripping on his forehead, God, take this from me. That is not a well-behaved person that prays that way. But his obedience was perfectly rooted in God's plan to save lost people. He said, but God, not my will, but yours be done. Not for my benefit. If, if, if Christ had done it for his own benefit, it's sayonara. But he said, God, no, not for my benefit, but your will be done. And the next day he was hanging on a cross. Jesus' obedience was rooted in God's redemptive story to save lost people through sending the Messiah to die on the cross, which he did. Jesus' obedience did not give us an example of the best way to live. Jesus' obedience gave us the way to glorify that God the most through dying. John 17, chapter 4. Let me just read it very quickly. Where's John? It's in the New Testament or the Old Testament? New Testament, good. John 17, verse 4. There's etern- this is eternal life. Jesus is praying that you may know that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus now says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. How did Jesus bring glory to the Father? By being completely obedient, even unto death on the cross. Jesus' example to us is not the best way to live for God to our benefit. Jesus' example for us is the best way to glorify God through dying to self every 
single day. Finally, Jesus knows the Father and knew his voice. We see this in John chapter 10. This is what it says in John chapter 10, chapter 10 verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And who is Jesus following? Who is Jesus seeking to obey? This is what he says in, earlier in that chapter, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is saying here, he knows the Father. He knows the voice of his Father. He said, I know I've, I've known him forever, and I, I, will, I know his voice, and I obey his voice, and my sheep know me, and my sheep will hear my voice and will obey my voice. My fa- the Father knows the Son, The Son knows the Father, and we hear the voice of the great shepherd. And Jesus says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Why do I say all that? Why obedience? It's rooted in God's redemptive story. Who's good at that? Anybody good at saying, I don't obey for my own. I just obey because I love being a part of Jesus' plan to save the world. Who does that? Who did that this morning? I better put my hand down. Guess what? Jesus did it perfect on your behalf. How about the next one? Who's good at saying, you know what? I just want to obey because I know it brings God great glory, brings him great benefit. I don't care about any side benefits for me. I just want to, I just love obeying God, dying to self every single day. I just can't wait, can't wait to get up tomorrow and set aside my, my own agenda and do what everybody else wants. Anybody excited about that? So thank the Lord Jesus did that perfectly on our behalf. How about the last one? You're really good at just saying, I, I, I know the Father's voice. I can hear it. I know the Son's voice. I hear that. I, I know what he's called me to do today. And I'm just going to set aside all those other voices that, that come into my view. The voice of, of temptation and the voice of, of security and the, and the voice of uh, significance and important. I, I'm just going to set all those things aside and, and pursue the voice of the Father today. Anybody want straight A's on that one? Thank the Lord Jesus knows the voice of the Father perfectly on our behalf. He's our substitute. He stands in for us. What, is, what does it say in John chapter 10? I laid down my life for the really good sheep who have followed all the rules. I added that last part. That's not in your Bible. I lay down my life for the sheep. I live my life perfectly for sheep who can't do it. I die my death perfectly for sheep who can't do it. I'm raised from the dead perfectly for sheep who can't do it. Jesus did it perfectly on our behalf. It's done. It's finished. The obedience thing is fixed. Why obedience? It's rooted in God's redemptive story, and Jesus did it for us. It's rooted in benefiting God, and Jesus did it for us. It's rooted in hearing the voice of God alone, and Jesus did it for us. And we can rest in him in knowing that he has paid the price for our sin and provided us his perfect righteousness. So then the journey of this life is the Holy Spirit stirring up in our hearts and conforming us into, this, into the image of Jesus who did this perfectly on our behalf. 
So it's already done for you, but now for the rest of your life, the Holy Spirit is going to take you moment by moment through the Word of God and through prayer and through the circumstances of your life and teach you each and every day to be more and more like the one who already did it for you. He's going to teach you over the time to die to self, to set aside those voices that we hear that we seek after, to only obey God when there's benefit for us. He's going to teach us to be like Christ, not so that we could attain eternal life, but because we have already attained eternal life through Jesus. Why obedience? Because God redeems and brings God glory and because we hear God's voice.